The Money Show. Other people's money. Tonight, the turn of Lindiwe Mazibuko. She's an academic. She's a former parliamentary leader for the Democratic Alliance. And lockdowns must have driven you mad because I've got really used to seeing you in airports, Lindiwe. Always very happy, always going through the fast track, always um, grasping opportunities and traveling and doing all sorts of things. This lockdown must have you know, been tough on you. It's weird. It's been pretty brutal, Bruce. On the one hand, I really miss the endless pressure of just literally going from airport to Uber to airport to Uber. Um, But on the other hand, I'm grateful that I finally get to stay in place for weeks at a time. Um, It has really messed with me a little bit, though, because um, I don't know if I even liked traveling that much. It was just such a necessity as part of my, my work. And now that it's not happening and so much is happening online, I feel a little bit bereft, but I should be relieved, but I'm not. It's a very confusing time. <laughs> no, it is. And, I mean, there's the convenience of online, of course, but there's the, the excitement and the nerves and the joy and the, the thrill of chasing the plane and making it by a nanosecond. Oh, those were the days. Now, listen, what, are you, what have you been up to? A lot of people um, were very conscious of your public presence, of course, when you were leader of the opposition in Parliament, and then that stopped. Uh, and you've been doing all sorts of interesting things since then. Just give me a, a quick synopsis. Um, well, I went to um, study in the United States. I was at Harvard yes. for a year. I then stayed on as a fellow of the Institute of Politics. I taught a class. I mentored students um, in the college and the graduate schools who wanted to go into public office. And then that inspired me to start um, the A Political Academy, which is a nonpartisan political training program uh, for people in Southern Africa, but we hope to expand into other parts of the continent, um, who want to go into politics and government, but who've never really had access to the networks or the training or the opportunities to do so. Uh, We're particularly um, interested in helping women and young people make the transition. So um, I've been running A Political Academy now for three years. My co-founders are in London, Berlin and uh, Stockholm. Um, We have a headquarters in London and one in Johannesburg. And that's why you saw me at the airport so much. I had to go (laughs) from the UK every two weeks. Um, which can I tell, I can tell you an economy class is not a joke uh, when you're running a nonprofit, but but there it was. And then uh, since the pandemic, um, I have come home to South Africa. I'm still on the board in the UK and still helping my co-founders run the global office, but I'm um, now based in Johannesburg permanently. Um, and yeah, I, I do a fellowship at Harvard every couple of years. I did a fellowship at Stellenbosch University briefly. Um, All of that has contributed to the research that helped build the academy. Um, And yeah, at the moment, I'm just focused on supporting people in the public service and people who want to transition to the public service. Why would you subject other human beings to that hell? I can think of no career choice more bereft of joy than the public service, certainly in South Africa right now. It's a hellhole. It's a pit, isn't it? So it's kind of like the old chicken and egg thing, right? You are not going to get a good public service unless you get good people in it, and you're not going to get good people in it unless there's other good people in it. 
So we have to increase the number of ethical, quality, intelligent, hardworking, good people in the public service to improve its reputation. So more good people will want to work in the public service. You know, it's like a rising tide that lifts all boats. So at the moment, I feel like sort of the people we are working with at the moment are those who are like incredibly passionate about being in office um, and who are willing to deal with the sort of slings and arrows. And hopefully they will you know, raise the ceiling or crack the ceiling for the, you know, the next group of people who, you know, want to do good work, want to be recognized for that good work and don't want to feel like they're part of a rotten system that is dysfunctional. Um, and hopefully if we continue that cycle of replacing the bad with the good over time, the public service in this country can become something we're proud of, but it's not going to happen automatically. And it's not going to happen if we sit around complaining about it. So my mission is to find the good people who want to do the work and help them get as far as they can with as many network um, a sort of connections with as much personal leadership training, skills building, um, and ultimately helping them figure out what the right path for them is um, as possible. How do you measure your success? How do you know whether or not you're achieving the goal that you started out uh, to achieve mm. on day one, three years ago? So we train 25 um, fellows a year and we've been adding programs not only um, in Southern Africa, but all over the world. We've added a program in Portugal, another one in Paraguay. Um, the reason I came home is because I want to focus on African expansion. And so I want to launch additional programs in Southern Africa so that we are, you know, training 50 people and then 75 people. We're busy working on a program that will support 375 um, fellows a year. Um, so we're always looking for ways in which we can either work in partnership with existing public sector institutions or with um, organizations in higher education or in the nonprofit sector that support people who work in the public sector. And for us, success is that, you know, 75% um, of the people who engage with us transition successfully into the public service. They have, you know, very successful careers in the sense that they are able to use their power and their influence to improve people's lives. Um, and that over time, um, you know, we, we start to build these centers of excellence where, you know, that are known for delivering well um, and that are known for replicating talent, um, you know, where they are. That That's success to me. And I, and I honestly believe that, you know, quality is a self-replicating thing. The problem is that public service is really just embroiled in scandal on a daily basis. And, and rightly so, the media is supposed to hold the government accountable. But the stories of great people in the public service are completely subsumed by that. And so it's really hard to find talented people who are willing to say, you know, I'm in the banking sector at the moment. My career is going really well. I've always wanted to work in government. I'm going to go for it. Because their number one fear is like, what's going to happen yeah. to my reputation? Uh, but so that's that you get tarnished yeah. by the rotten apples. Yeah. and. I mean, I, would, yeah. I recall having this conversation with Pravin Gordon about why it is that that boards went rotten in the public service, and he was just saying, yeah. you know, you'd have you'd have a, a high functioning board, and a, a, a rotten apple would get appointed, and then that rotten apple would somehow become the chair, and would start then to subsume yeah. control of the board, and the next thing you'd have two rotten apples, and by the time there were three rotten apples on the board, nobody else on the board wanted to be there anymore, so they cleared out, and that cleared the decks for yeah. the bad guys to come in and take over. And that's unfortunately the state yeah. that we're in. But do you believe we're making progress the other way? Are we beginning to get a, a back to an ethical and, and service-orientated public sector? So I think it's a lot of like two steps forward, one step back, and then sometimes 
you know, two steps forward, three steps back. Um, so, for example, I just I love that I live in a country where a former president can legitimately be arrested on the basis of not uh, adhering <laughs> to the law. <laughs> Sorry, um, I have to go home I, early tonight. I've got a tickle in my uh, throat. My doc, my doctor I mean, says we, I can't stay. For goodness sake, we can have <clears> we can have all we can have all the like we can we can be as as derisive of the the commissioner of, yes. of, of correctional services as we like, but the fact is that between the National Prosecuting Authority, the Constitutional Court, um, you know, and and frankly, the South African Police Service. We are now one of the countries in the world, including like Venezuela and France and probably the United States, where a, a former head of state has gone to jail. And that says a lot about accountability. It says a lot that, it, you know, we haven't yet reached the stage where we're equal before the law, but we're certainly putting in place the norms that make it possible for us to start to see people who felt previously untouchable yeah. actually being exported to jail, ironically by their own security detail, which is part of the SAPs, right? You know, the one thing that used to be, you know, a symbol of their power becomes actually a symbol of their accountability. So I'm really, I'm loving that I live in South Africa in which that is happening. So every former head of state must ask themselves, what was I doing when I was in office? <laughs> and, you know, there but for the grace of God, you know, Go I. So that's a good position to be in. But then the three steps back is like every five minutes we turn around and someone has been eating, uh, you know, uh, PPE money or eating funds that are supposed to be, you know, uh, supporting unemployed people through the pandemic or, you know, feasting on contracts in the SOEs. It's kind of like really debilitating to hear sort of this narrative, this consistent narrative of public sector rot on a daily basis. Yeah. And then the two steps forward is that like, well, if we were living in a more corrupt state, we wouldn't even be hearing these stories, right? We'd Correct. be hearing it all kind of being papered over. Kind of transparency and openness necessitates that, you know, the rot comes out. The question is what happens once the rot is out, you know? Do we have prosecutions? You know, do we have people going to jail? And I honestly believe we have an NPA that is in a position now to put together bulletproof cases and prosecute them in such a way where, yes, justice will be slow because it will be meticulous and good, but ultimately um, charges against people who have committed wrongdoing will stick and ultimately we'll start to see consequences for their actions. So, you know, I think there's there's a little bit more pain to go. We've got a few more teeth to pull before we start to heal. But if we can keep that momentum going, I think there's enormous hope for us as South Africans. I just... I think we've got to stop feeling like we get to sit on the sidelines and not be part of the rebuilding effort. We actually to, all have to, to get to your off. line, to your line, probably ten years ago now about being treated as the recently bereaved whenever you went around Harvard and people would sort of say, oh, you're Lindy, where you're from South Africa. I'm so sorry yep. about that. Um, and, and that feeling of being like a third-class citizen from a third-class place is just, we've got yep. to get over it. Lindiwe Mazabuko yeah. is our guest this evening. She is a political person. There we go. Um, she's not a former <laughs> politician. She's, you're highly political. I think you are. Uh, Lindiwe Mazabuko, more with her in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. Uh, so Pepe Maria, the founder of Joe Public, saying one and a half trillion rand stolen. I hope that's all it is, Pepe. <laughs> 
too. That's the, the latest guesstimate, of course. That's a th- 1,500 billionaires. Nice perspective, Pepe. Uh, he'd like to see hundreds of people prosecuted, not just a few. Yep, we live in hope, Pepe. We most certainly do. Lindiwe Mazibuka has been talking about that this evening. She is the former uh, parliamentary leader of the Democratic Alliance. Uh, and working for a non-profit organization, one gets the impression, therefore, that money isn't your motivating factor. It isn't the number one priority in your life, Lindy, eh? <laughs> No, it's not. Um, if, if I was more organized, I might have found a rich partner for myself, you know. But no, I, um, I have never been motivated exclusively by money. In fact, I think the things I'm most attracted to, there's a, there's a sort of indirect correlation. The more I'm interested in them, the less they pay. Um, and that's okay. Uh, I also think, um, you know, I'm very fortunate. I come from a, a background in which I don't have to um, worry too much about supporting, you know, huge numbers of family members, although, you know, we all support one another. I have the opportunities to do things that benefit others um, in addition to sort of feeding my sense of purpose. So I think that's a little bit of a luxury. I think for a lot of other people, you know, having a career is about going to the university, getting an accounting degree, getting a law degree, becoming a professional and doing what you have to do to support, you know, your extended family. To, to, a, to a lesser extent, I've been a little bit sort of absolved of that. And so I've been able to pursue things that are my passions. Um, you need you need to passion. fill in some of the gaps uh, there, Lindy. So talk to me about Lindy Wade growing up. What has put you in this position where you don't have the pressure that so many South Africans who are first-generation corporate, first-generation graduates, first-generation big income earners, um, they face very, yeah. very tough choices. Yeah, so I'm not the first university graduate in my family, for example. Um, my family has university graduates going back to, I believe, my my great-grandparents, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I was raised, even though it was during apartheid, I was raised by sort of quite middle-class parents who most of whom were government employees of some description. Um, most of my aunts, uncles um, were nurses, doctors, lawyers, etc. The professions that black people were allowed to be a part of because white professionals were not allowed to service them. Mm. Um, so I come from a family in which, you know, I do have those responsibilities in the extended family just as a consequence of sort of culture, but it's never been the motivating factor that has driven my life choices. And I think more than a lot of young black uh, university graduates, for example, I haven't made my choices of profession or vocation or subject based on the question of like, can I support Ugoko? Will I be able to support my cousins? Will I be able to support my family? Um, Really, I've been very fortunate in that, you know, before I was a politician, I was a musician. Um, and I, you know, although that was extremely sort of unpopular in my family, um, I, I was able to make those choices because um, there was an understanding in my family that our parents had worked hard in order to ensure that we had choices that perhaps then, you know, necessarily did not. What um, kind so that, of musician were you? Um, are you? Because uh, that <laughs> never leaves you, I'm sure. I'm a singer. I, I was a singer. I, I mean, it's like politician. Am I still a singer? I don't think so. I can barely read music anymore. But I did go to music school for one year before dropping out um, because I couldn't go to finish my were degree. A, in the UK. Were you like in a band? Were you in a band, in a choir? In a... No. No. I was a classical musician. I did sing okay. in a number of choirs, but my career ambition was to become a conductor. Um, I wanted to do a Bachelor of Music, which I started at UKZN. Um, I wanted to finish it in the UK and then do a master's, um, a bachelor, um, a master of music, 
with uh, conducting as my principal study. And um, so when, when, when that didn't happen, you then went into conducting a political party in Parliament, and that must have been <laughs> like conducting a, 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 a herd similar. of cats. Very, very similar. Just yeah, I mean, <clears throat> when I dropped out of music school and realized I couldn't finish in the UK, I mean, again, another sort of symbol of the very fortunate background I come from is my mother was like, when are you going to finish school? And in my family, finishing school means getting a bachelor's degree, which I hadn't finished. So um, I came back and went to UCT. And it's true. I think ultimately between music, you know, where you're, where you're sort of leading a group of very talented people who have got you know, capabilities in their own right, and you're trying to bring them together for a common purpose. I think politics is a lot like that as well. I'm pretty sure academia is the same, a couple of other creative industries. Yeah, a lot of commonalities. Um, do you wish you had lots more money? Do you wish that there was oodles of cash that you could just flit about, travel the world, focus on music? I do. Um... <clears throat> no, no, no. Um, no, um, I have enough for myself. Um, I think I have more than enough for myself. Um, I, but I do wish I had more freedom to... So, so for example, I, I have founded um, now, at this stage, I've now founded two nonprofits, um, considering st um, starting a third. And uh, my main sort of task every single day is to go out and raise money, which, you know, I did that in politics. It's very important. And it's, um, it's a necessary part of, of sort of doing a public service that matters. But I often think if I was independently wealthy, I could just cut straight to the purpose, right? And, and not have to pitch a hundred times, you know, a week to, you know, a, a whole group of different individuals. So I think there's a world in which if I was independently wealthy, I could be some kind of philanthropist. And I really envy people who have the resources to be able to make really strategic choices about what projects and what areas of public need they can support. But nevertheless, um, you know, I'm passionate about what I do and it's not a problem for me to go out and raise the, the necessary funding. Um, but I do think that's what I would do. My mom would probably live in a little bit more luxury as well. You know, I'd do nice things for her, like, you know, buy her a nice big car and the kind of things that um, she would have had if my father was still alive. She's um, She was widowed in 1992. Um, uh, so there's little things that I think of, you know, people I'd like to spoil and um, things I'd like to not have to worry about. Don't be all hate debit orders. Oh, yeah. Know, what a nightmare. <laughs> but, terrible, but terrible things. That, I, have, <laughs> I have so much to be grateful for. Um, and so, no, I, I don't feel hard done by in any way, shape or form. I just think life is, you know, life in a capitalist society is a sort of a struggle to maintain your living standard and, and then keep pace with inflation. Um, and that's really all I have to do. Lindy Wemazabuko, thank you for sharing this evening. She is a political person.